You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of this program. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking in person with Mark Johnson about the history of Chinese in the West. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Crystal. Very happy to be here. Glad you're here, Mark. And in person, this is, but we are social distanced. Yes. We are far, we are indeed. We're, yes. We're at the far end of each table. <laughs> well, Mark, I'm so glad you're here today to talk about the history of the um, Chinese in the West. You spoke a few years ago for our lecture series. And whenever I talk about that lecture, everyone is always so excited to say how much they enjoyed it and how much they enjoyed hearing that presentation. It was just so good. And it really gave us new information about the Chinese that we hadn't heard before. And I think that was what everyone was so excited about. So we're glad to have you here today to talk more about that a little more in depth. We're going to dive a little deeper in this conversation, hopefully. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, but I'm excited to introduce you. Um, Mark Johnson is a fellow with the University of Notre Dame's Institute for Educational Initiatives. In this role, Mark works with the Alliance for Catholic Education, partnering with middle and high school social studies teachers who serve in under-resourced Catholic schools across the country. In his history interests, which is what we're going to focus on today, Mark focuses on the Chinese experience in his home state of Montana. Previously working in Shanghai, China, Mark brought students with the necessary language abilities to Montana to translate several collections of documents from the state's historic Chinese communities to work to tell the history of Montana's Chinese in their own words. And um, when you brought those students, it was so fun because you gave Marcia and I a call, Marcia Fulton, the um, co-director of Extreme History, and I were able to go and meet those students and spend a day with you guys at Montana Historical Society and then also in the uh, cemetery, the Chinese cemetery right outside of Helena. And that was such an amazing day, and I still have photos of that day, and we use those photos for some of the things that we do. And I always look back and and think how, how wonderful that was to meet those students and get to go to that cemetery with them and see where their, um, not their descendants, but descendants of, of some of their families were buried. So, so that was a great day. Yeah, they were, they were an amazing group of students, those students that I had the privilege to work with at a school called Concordia International School in Shanghai, China. And really their, their abilities and their families' cultural and language and, and just ability to partner in creative ways made all of these projects possible. So we reached out to you then, and we were so glad to see the work that you're doing and for that relationship to continue. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mark. So, Mark, it sounds from your bio uh, that you've spent time in China and in Shanghai specifically. And growing up in Montana, 
traveling to China. Tell us where you your interest got started, and then how that led to doing research on Chinese history in Montana. Yeah, so I'm, I'm first of all a proud graduate of Carroll College in Helena, Montana, and that's where I first learned a little bit about the Chinese history of the region and of the state. And that was through the work of Dr. Robert Swartow,、mm-hmm. and he came out with a very influential article in the late '80s that really did a wonderful job of looking at why the Chinese came to Montana, what their experiences were like, and what contributions they made. So just doing my history major with Dr. Swartout, I, I was aware of that,、okay. and then life took me away from Montana to Boston to Seattle. My wife and I decided to see the world a little bit and decided to move with a one and a half year old baby at the time to Shanghai, China. So you know, a little village of twenty five.、Oh, okay,、million. wait, that's a big jump. Yes. How did you pick that place? To we had some we had some people that we'd、uh, worked with in Seattle who had just made that jump as well,、okay. and they convinced us that we had to give it a try. Fantastic. So Janet and I wanted to see the world and wanted to really raise our boys. We had one at the time, have two now. With a sense that the world is not a scary place, but the world is open to them, and experiences and cultures and histories that might seem foreign are knowable and able to be appreciated. And there's sponges at that age. Yeah, yeah. So it was wonderful. So working there in Shanghai, I was teaching at this school, and all instruction was in English. I was an English teacher, but not you know. Sometimes you hear you're an English teacher in China. No, I was an English teacher. We were reading the Grapes of Wrath and the Great Gatsby and things like that. But I also taught history, world、okay. history, and American history.、Mm. And so, as I was teaching those students, they were just such a wonderful blend of cultures from around the world. So, in my American history class, I had kids from Norway and Australia and Singapore,、oh, and Malaysia, and Korea, and Ghana,、oh, and America, and Canada. And so, Shanghai is very multicultural. It, it, in that it way. is now,、okay. and it, it was 120 years ago as wow. well. Wow! Yeah, yeah, wow. and so. They they were a group that was just so hardworking and so engaged in anything that you would do. If you brought passion to your projects, they would reciprocate with similar passion and diligence. So one summer, I was back home in in Montana, staying with、uh, Janet's family in Helena, and I got a request from my mother-in-law. And you never say no to that type of request.、Right? <laughs> so Lucille O'Leary, you never do. <laughs> yeah, right. You want to stay there. Lucille right, O'Leary, right. A, a history buff herself, and she was walking through a cemetery in. Helena, and she came across a tombstone that she wanted me to look into in more depth, and it just piqued her interest.、And、on its surface, it didn't seem to have anything to do with Chinese history. The tombstone read John R. Bitzer, a native of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, born 1833, died January 1870. Nothing terribly interesting there, but the epitaph is what caught Lucille's attention and what she wanted more information on. And it read, "Here he lies, his life cut short, his death avenged." Wow! So、yeah. there's a story there. There is a story there. And I happen to have a trip planned to the Montana Historical Society for a different research project. So I I dug into it a little bit when I went to the MHS, and that's where the Chinese element of things came in.、Hmm. Turns out Bitzer's demise was at the hands of a Chinese man named Ah Chow in January 1870 in Helena. So then I began researching more and more on that. And in fact, many of the documents we that I found at the Montana Historical Society they gave me an idea. I went back to teaching high school that September in Shanghai, and I started my American history class with what, what's called an inquiry-based project. Okay. So I brought these documents to my students, and instead of teaching history in a way where I lecture, they write down notes, then they answer multiple choice or a blue book type exam, I thought, no, let's practice the skills of being an historian. Right. And so I, I pushed these documents to them and said, this is you know somewhat of an unsolved mystery. Let's figure out what we can find out. 
Oh. And so they would analyze and interpret and hypothesize and assert and correct. And we were in this communication with the Montana Historical Society all the time, even though we were thousands of miles away, where we would then ask for new documents from them. They would correct some of our hypotheses and assertions and this back and forth. I thought it was maybe going to be a five day start to the year, just kind of a, you know, prime the pump, so to speak. And it really took several months. And the passion that those students brought was just contagious. Wow. When I would let them know there's a new yeah. email from the Montana Historical Society, they would clamor to the oh, room. Oh, that's yeah. great. <laughs> so I, I remember uh, your lecture, and you did a lot of that kind of inquiry-based mm -hmm. discussion with the group of us uh, at um, the Museum of the Rockies. And you had lots of images up there and things that we could respond to in the moment. And I remember thinking, this guy's a great instructor. And I'm sure all of those students still remember that class and still talk about and it. And I'm still in touch with many of them. That's, that's fantastic. It was, it was, in my educational career, the high point of my high school teaching is to watch these students be empowered as historians. Mm. I think the mystery aspect of, of history, that investigative aspect, we talk always about how we love going into the archives. We love digging as archaeologists. It, 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 that's that element that's thrilling, yeah. what, what you find out. Um, so I want to start moving back a little bit. And thank you for getting us from here to Shanghai and back so we understand <laughs> that part of the story. And as somebody who moved out as an adult to Montana, um, I, I came to a state that is very beautiful, demographically not very diverse. Um, Bozeman is where I've lived, but there and traveling around, I didn't see the same diversity I experienced on the East Coast sure. or even when I lived in Arizona and New Mexico. So I thought, oh, well, maybe it's the climate, the environment up here. There's long, cold winters. Maybe there's certain people who don't. There weren't a lot of African Americans. There weren't a lot of Asian Americans. And you just kind of think maybe there's some cultural preference for why people aren't here. As I delved into history and um, began down certain research roads, uh, listening also to the research Crystal's doing and other people I came in contact with through that, became apparent to me that obviously there were, from 1860 on, once we have the gold rush, there's all kinds of people coming, not only from all over other parts of uh, the Americas, but other parts of Europe. And then you have freed slaves or escaped slaves coming out here. You have um, plenty of African-Americans, and you have a lot of Chinese and other folks as well. But that lasts for a certain period of time, and then they're not here. So I want to start, before I get to my question, and sorry, this is a very long-winded okay. intro, <laughs> but I thought I want to ground um, our listeners just a little bit in to understand, I feel like the story you're telling is it encapsulates a lot of the conundrum of this country a lot of the things about it. And you you use quotes in the material you generously shared with us by Thomas Dimsdale, who yeah. was of the Montana Post. And in the beginning, the first quote is he's talking about how it's wonderful to be an American citizen because this country is the refuge of the oppressed of every clime. No nobler character can be claimed by any people. Um, Basically, everybody is welcome, and that's what makes this nation great. But probably very soon after he wrote those words, talking about how noble and everyone's welcome, and this is the country of refuge for everyone, he goes on to say, but not the Chinese, basically. A Chinese can never be made into a citizen. As we say, 
get rid of any human animal that is mm. not susceptible to improvement or elevation. I mean, just the words there mm. are really strong. We should be transported to know that the last of them were exported. Really harsh words. And so, as is true of so many of the incredible individuals that we have in history, these people were complex and complicated, but therein lies the reason why we don't still have, to some extent, a lot of Chinese living here today, because we had a lot of laws passed that really made it very difficult for somebody who is coming over from China to, first of all, they couldn't be a citizen, but then they there was a lot of other things that were denied them. So can you just give us a little background on what it was like to be Chinese coming to Montana in the 1860s, 1880s? Sure. And that Dimsdale quote is great, and it's, it's great for how vile it is, right? It mm, really encapsulates so the treatment that the Chinese were... Uh, welcomed, I guess, for lack of a better word, with when they came to Montana and really all parts of the West. They had been in California as early as 1848-49 with the gold rush. And then really they followed those waves of strikes of precious metal to Idaho, to Colorado, and eventually to Montana and other parts of the West. Uh, at that moment, when, when the Achao incident happened in January 1870, Helena's Chinese population was more than 20% of the city of Helena. 20%. 20%. And that's a that's, that's a large that's a large yeah. minority population because there was a mixed I'm sure population exactly. beyond that. And wow. then overall in the territory of Montana in 1870, it's estimated that 10 to 15 percent of Montana was Chinese. But you're right; they they're no longer here. A lot Especially of, not in that numbers. No, yeah. yeah. And a lot of times the history books that do acknowledge their presence here scratch their head a little bit in terms of where they went. And I, I think we have better answers to where they went. Sometimes it is the the sending culture. So sometimes it's almost an excuse to say, well, the reason they're not here anymore is they never meant to stay in the first place. They were sojourners. They came to yes, make money and you go do, home. You still hear that. You still yeah. hear people. That's an assumption. And honestly, before I came out and really started studying and hanging out with historians, um, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a natural assumption to sort of make. It's an easy idea in your head. And I think that's what's so fascinating as your research is we really have another story to tell. And, and that cultural piece is, to, is true to a certain extent. Most of the people who left southern China, Guangdong province, and specifically this small county, very populous county, but quite small geographically called Taishan County, most of them were men who went out to make money to support family members back home who were in very dire straits. And yes, many of them did hope to make their riches here or in Canada or in Mexico or in Australia and go home with an elevated status. But in some comparative work that's been done with people looking at other places where Chinese from the same region went out to in the same time period, they stayed in those regions more than they did here in North America. Hmm. And so it's not just the Chinese cultural preference to call these men back home. Right. It's also the legal repression that they faced that made it very difficult to put down roots here. And, and I would assert that those laws were intentionally done so as to diminish the Chinese the, the likelihood that the Chinese population would take root. I mean, just embedded in the name of those laws, the yeah. Chinese Exclusion Act, yeah. all of these things, but not being able to give testimony in court. Yeah. I mean, so say some, someone does something wrong to you, you can't even defend yourself. But then just not being able to own property in the same way. There's so many things not being able to intermarry yeah. that prevented them from having any of the same rights that other 
uh, white people had coming to this territory. Yeah. yeah, so early on there's the 1875 Page Act, which is an attempt by its its creators on its surface to stop prostitutes from, from coming into the United States. We do know that many of the Chinese women who came did work as prostitutes, but the Page Act was very restrictive in trying to stop prostitutes, but really it's the inference was any Chinese woman was assumed to be a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have that gender balance, it's going to be difficult to, to take root. If in. you don't come as a wife, then. Exactly. And had, then even that right. became more difficult. So it, at one time, wives of workers were allowed. So workers were welcomed in right. the 1860s. 1868 right. Burlingame Treaty, the, the U.S. government is saying, yes, please send us our workers. We know that the, the American West is resource rich and labor poor. And so these Chinese workers were essential in building the infrastructure that helped build the West. But after the transcontinental railroads were completed, then labor competition switched. Exactly. And so labor labor unions became very anti-Chinese and then the legislation followed. So before the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese workers, laborers were allowed to come in and were allowed to bring their wives. But then in 1882, it was an attempt to exclude not all Chinese but Chinese workers very specifically. They didn't want competition then for labor. So people it was were largely economic competition. Okay. But you scratch the surface of any of these justifications and, and racism and cultural antagonism is right under the surface. Well, that's where I think the Dimsdale quote is very, yeah. because it's not just racism. Uh, this stuff later became the, that racism was turned into legislation. Yes. And those two things working together really prevented people from staying. So the Page Act, can you talk a little bit more about that? And I guess what I'm interested in is is were the um, were the wives restricted as well as single women coming in? That I guess you know that difference yeah, between it's a, it's wives coming and single women coming. You know, it's interesting because a lot of times the questions uh, that maybe census enumerators gave to the Chinese made such cultural assumptions. I've been looking very closely at the census of 1880 in Helena, and 26 women appear on the census. Uh, 24 of them are identified as prostitutes. Wow. That's and, so and that, but that, that then becomes yeah. the official record. Right. Like the census becomes the official record. And my uh, contention is that the census enumerator didn't even talk to these women. Right. In the 1880 census, there were categories of single or married or widowed. And for all 26 Chinese women, that category is not filled out at all. There was a column that said, how long have you worked? How many months in the last year have you been employed in your pre- present employment? And for me, all the Chinese men, that's that a, a check mark is made. For the Chinese women, that's left blank. Right. And so I don't think that those census enumerators, at least for Helena, actually even talk to these Chinese women. Plus the language barrier is Tremendous. impossible for Tremendous. both sides. Yeah. But yeah. in 1880, there were instructions to census enumerators that if you didn't trust the answer somebody gave you as to their employment... You could make an assumption that would override that answer. Hmm. And I really think they went into these seeing a Chinese woman equated as a prostitute. Right. Now, of course, many Chinese women in the American West did work as prostitutes. But I think that the numbers are, are quite overstated. And so if you begin to associate prostitution with debauchery and defilement of, of Victorian principles of America at the time, and you associate all Chinese women as prostitutes it's not too far of a leap to say all Chinese women should be excluded. Okay. Even then, the wives of merchants, when they should have been allowed in as an exempt class, basically had to prove that their marriage was legitimate in the eyes of a Westerner. And yet so marriages for the that? Chinese looked very different. Yeah. Oh, the men had been working over here in what they called right. Gold Mountain in, in America. 
and they often sent for an arranger back in in the home county to arrange a marriage and the bride and groom really had never met Mm -hmm. sometimes until she got off the boat in Seattle or Port Townsend or San Francisco and to the eyes of Western officials that didn't look like a legitimate marriage so oftentimes it was assumed that those marriages were illegitimate and attempt to bring in women who would work as prostitutes. Okay. So were some of them some of the women coming on their own were they were they wanting to come here themselves or were oftentimes their family members putting them on boats and sending them here to be married to yeah. be married or to be prostitutes or I'm curious about that. Yeah, sometimes uh, women, and it sounds quite insensitive, but from a cultural standpoint, knowing what they were going through in Taishan, it is more understandable. Sometimes daughters were sold, Mm -hmm. and that would be sold into some type of what we would probably call slavery or into prostitution or service in some way. Uh, And in reality, they didn't have a whole lot of say in things, to be honest. Um, It's hard to tell the Chinese history of the American West because of a, a lack of sources, and it's even harder to tell the Chinese history, the history of the Chinese women in the American West, because very, right. very few sources from them persist. Right. But in that void of sources, I think myth and exoticization oftentimes yes. fill that void. And so a lot of times people in the 21st century, when they think back on the past, they want a romanticized version. It sounds weird to say the prostitution is romanticized, but an exoticized version of the mm-hmm. past, mm-hmm. a mythologized mm-hmm. version of the past. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I, I do need to stress, many Chinese women in the West did work as prostitutes. Mm-hmm. I think we can get closer to their hopes and dreams and ambitions and identities than just stopping at that generalization. Right. I mean, I, I find that so interesting because you're saying they're coming from a, a part of China where there weren't many prospects, there was a lot of hardship, and they didn't have any opportunities or necessarily real autonomy over their own future decisions. So ending up in the United States, um, I just imagine that language barrier. Now, I'm just even wondering between the laborers and the women who might have been coming over, how many of those folks were literate? Because again, this is impeding us from understanding more about these people. It's a great question. And the assumption always has been that the workers who came over were illiterate. What we're finding now more and more is that they were literate. Fantastic. And, wow. and so actually one of the finds, you know, every time we've gone into the archives, I, I keep saying we as if my high school students from 10 years ago are still part of this project. <laughs> every time I've gone into the archives, new documents emerge in a very exciting way. And so some of those documents are letters from Chinese families in Taishan County writing to workers in Montana. Wow. And we don't have the return letters because obviously those would be in Taishan County in southern China. But we have one one collection of documents is about 90 documents of letters from the 1880s to the 1920s to a man working in Butte. And they testify to the pressures that he's under from cultural and family expectations from back in southern China, but also what the family back in southern China is going through during this time period. Wow. wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. You know, and it's great to have access to those documents. And now with the, you know, all the all these collections going online, there's there a lot of things are opening up, a lot of these letters and yeah. documents. So it's it's an exciting time for researchers, for historians to be doing this work. So And, and if, if I could on these letters just here for a little bit. When I found those a number of years ago, um I thought I, I talked to the Montana Historical Society staff and I said, hey, do, have you ever had these translated? They said, no, we don't really know anybody who reads Chinese. And I thought to myself, well, I, I know a few people who read Chinese, you know. So yeah. <laughs> I, I digitized some of the documents and send them to some Mandarin teachers at my school. 
and they could read about 30% of the documents. Oh, wow. That and the reason amazing. is, is the documents from the 1880s and 90s, they're written in a difficult-to-decipher calligraphy, and they're written in the form of writing Chinese characters that was called the traditional form. Okay. And after the Chinese victory in the Communist Civil War, after 1949, uh, Mao Zedong and the Communists, to try and spread literacy, simplified the Chinese characters. Okay. And so if you're of a certain generation and you grew up in the People's Republic of China, it's very difficult for you to read traditional characters. So I thought I had a, 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 a you know, the inside lane to translate these documents. The whole Rosetta Stone, but yeah. But then, so what we did is we, we approached families from Hong Kong and Taiwan who still learn in the traditional form of Chinese character writing and families who had family members of a certain generation where they would have learned the traditional character writing. So we did translate those documents. And as I mentioned, every dive into the archives produced something new. We found an additional group of documents from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s that we also worked to translate. That's that's fascinating. We're just going to pause for a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM Bozeman. We're speaking today with Mark Johnson about his history of the Chinese in the American West and specifically in Montana. So I just wanted to follow up, Mark, on what you were saying about researching and, and it's the research you've done is amazing. And the reason I know that is because I've tried to do some of this research myself. Um, and our team here at Extreme History, we've done a lot of walking tours that focus on the Chinese, uh, or try to anyway, and as much as we can. And so we've dived in collectively into the archives to really try to better understand Chinese history in Bozeman and in Montana more generally and understand that it is just tough. And so, you know, one of the things that I always think when I think about when I think about you doing your research is we um, often run into the names. The names are hard because people living in Bozeman in the 1870s, 1880s did not want, did not know how to pronounce Chinese names or more, more likely probably didn't want to take the time to figure out how to pronounce Chinese names. I, of course, that was it. So they refer to a lot of the Chinese people living here in Bozeman as China Jim, China Mary. And I know that's the case throughout the West and maybe out throughout the whole nation as well. But so that makes it really hard to research when you have five China Marys yeah. um, here in Bozeman and in Helena and in Butte and, you know, all across. And so what are some of your other frustrations with doing some of this research and, and trying to better understand who these people were, what they did, what their lives were like, what their daily lives were like? how they went about um, making a living here in Bozeman or in Montana. Sure. Yeah, it is a frustrating element of things. And, and before I go into some of those specifics on that, overall, my project seeks to answer that question in two ways. Okay. I want to try and tell the history of the Chinese in Montana in their own words, or at least from their own cultural perspective, and through a global lens. So understanding Montana history, but also understanding events in China that reverberated here and back and forth. And so to do that, I think we need to try and get to their identities as they would have defined themselves. And that's difficult when we use non-Chinese sources. A good example of this is the territorial census of 1870. That's the one that said, you know, there's 10%, maybe 15% of the territory that's Chinese. I thought, great, let's, let's look into this and find some identities and really track this down. It gives age, it gives occupation, 
But when it comes to their identities, for the most part, they're rendered as China man, China woman, China boy. Mm-hmm. And so their identities elude us. They're obscured by probably that language barrier, but also just by the cultural divide between the Chinese communities and the census enumerators. Then in 1880, as I mentioned, that census seems to provide some better answers because those those enumerators by 1880 have gone away from calling them in official documents, China man, China woman. Obviously, all these uh, racist uh, terms are in quotation marks. Right, right, right exactly. Um, yes. And, and so if you look at the 1880 census, for instance, in Helena, it does look like names rise to us and names that are not John Chinaman or China Mary and things like that. But when I started looking more closely at it, 44% of those Chinese who were surveyed in in Helena come to us as ah something. Ah Ki, ah Lung, ah So, ah Sam. I thought, what's going on What does that mean? Is that like mister? What is that? It's a great question. What we think is that it's a diminutive expression from central and southern China for people who are familiar with each other. And yet the census enumerators took that as a family name or a given name. Mm. Now, the Chinese community itself may be referred to that gentleman as Ah Sam, but that's just a familial cultural because expression. Because they knew him. They were, they were friends with him. Exactly. They, yeah. His actual identity would, would not have been as Ah Sam. And so we need to try and get as much as possible the Chinese language sources. Now, there's an interesting really side note to all this. In 1905, there was a census. Seems weird because census in America at least should happen on the right. zero or the ten year, right? right? Well, they called it a census. It really wasn't a census. It was a, a roust. It was basically an ice raid at the time, to use a modern term, a document check. Oh, okay. And so it was more of a just it, going in and seeing who was there. It was a tool of oppression, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, tool of oppression. In 1892, there was a, an act called the Gary Act. I just wanted to ask you about yeah. that because didn't that mean they actually had to have like passbooks? Yes. I'm thinking yep. my husband's South African yep. in that apartheid yeah. era, a passport to just move around to prove that you're there. So wouldn't you have had to have a name or an identity for that to That's work? a great question. That's a great question. And, and that passbook comparison is, is apt. So in 1892, the Gary Act, it was on the 10-year, uh, um, you know, petering out of the Chinese Exclusion Act, but they, the government very much wanted to reassert the Chinese Exclusion Act, and this was its form. And so in the Gary Act, it basically moved Chinese exclusion from the ports and borders to investigating Chinese communities who had already gained access to the interior of places like Marysville, Montana, or Livingston, and places like that. Oh, it's almost like the shift in their concern exactly. from keeping them out to how. What do we do with them now that well, they're here? And they were fr- they being uh, government officials were frustrated because they had thought that with the Chinese Exclusion Act of eighteen eighty two, the Chinese population in America would decline, and it stayed pretty steady. In Montana, in fact, it increased. Oh, and so they were frustrated, and and Senator Wilbur Fisk Sanders, a founding father of vigilante, you know, upstanding <laughs> guy of Montana history, he was frustrated, and he said, "We hope we we want the, them to be diminished to extinction," mm. which was, is like what Dimsdale said. Yeah, started, but yeah. you know, and and you mentioned the complexity of Dimsdale. Sanders is equally complex because at one point in time, he legally represents the Chinese in Butte huh. against this anti-Chinese boycott, and yet on a national stage, he's saying we want them to be diminished. To extinction, so he's. He, I think he's a politician and, and right. speaking to his constituency. And maybe he was being paid as a lawyer to represent. But that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So then that 1892 act, the Chinese fought against that, mm-hmm. not just in Montana but across the nation. Eventually, though, it was required in 1894 that they comply. Wow. And compliance mm-hmm. meant if you were uh, 
anybody who was not exempt. So if you're a student, you were exempt. If you're a merchant, theoretically, you were exempt. Anybody else had to have an internal passport, a green card, basically. Mm. This document with your vital statistics, when you registered, and a photograph. Now, a copy of that photograph would also be kept on hand at the local inspector's office. Technically, you didn't have to have it on you at all times, but the reality was that if you were caught without this document, you could be deported. And deportations happened frequently and quite quickly. Wow. And so it wasn't enforced in the 1890s very heavily because of lack of funding for this department. But by 1902-1903, it is enforced. And Montana's Chinese population diminishes by 50% because of this Gary Act deportation. Wow. So it was an easy way to get people out of your state, yeah. maybe out of the country. Yeah. And so I go back to that 1905 census and the issue of names. In 1905, now with increased funding for the department that was in charge of this, they decided to do a survey of how many Chinese there were, where they were, and if they had these documents. Okay. This is the 1905 special census for the Montana-Idaho region. And so the census, again, I shouldn't even call them census. The inspectors went to every Chinese community they could get to and rousted the Chinese community to check for documents, papers, please. Was this funded by the federal government? Yes. Yeah. And why wasn't it extended to other states? Great, great question. Great question. Uh, because the Chinese fought against it. That's amazing. On a global scale. Wow. Global and so it was scale. just then restricted to these territories. So they did huh. it in a couple of different regions. But that shows this incredible activism yeah. and yeah. self-consciousness about what's going on and how to work the system. So I'll, I'll get to the, the fight against it in a minute. Okay. But back to the name issue. So when these inspectors went around each Chinese community, they had a Chinese interpreter with them. And his name was Moi Don Sheng. Okay. It's a Moi being culturally literate and an expert in his own language, could render to us in that document the identities of the Chinese residents that were rousted much more accurately than Ah Sam of 1880 or China Man Anonymous of 1870. Okay. 1,336 Chinese rise on that document. That's not all the Chinese in the state, but those, those who were checked. Right. Because others were exempt, right? Okay. Of those 1,336... Less than 5% are identified as ah this, ah that, ah this. Okay. Back to the 1880 census, more than 40% were identified as ah, ah, ah. So and so that 1905 document check does allow us to get, it allows us a, a couple of things. We see where they are in 1905. We also see where they were in 1894 when they registered. So we can look at movement. That's wonderful. Exactly. You can trace. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And we see identity much more mm. accurately because of Moidan Shing's efforts. Now, he was not... Uh, appreciated in the Chinese communities mm. that he was uh, interviewing. But it's an important document, and it really has not received much scholarly attention. So where is this document located? Is it at the Montana Historical Society? The original is at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and a colleague of mine brought it to my attention. I thought, oh, i got to fund a trip out there. i got to get yeah. to D.C. How am I going to do this? And then I happened to check at the MHS, and it's on microfilm. Oh, wonderful. Fantastic. Three weeks transcribing every name wow. uh, for Montana That's and Idaho wonderful. for that time period. Well, when I read, I read when we, I read the material that you sent, and you talked about this 1905 census, I was just blown away. I was Crystal so excited. Was like we have to find yeah. out. About that. <laughs> yeah. So I asked um, the Montana State University Special Collections if they had a copy. They don't. So I have to schedule a trip to MHS because I've got to see this thing. Well, and you just uh, you look in my laptop. I've got okay. it all digitized, right? So we can definitely collaborate. In that <laughs> okay, way. wonderful. But you mentioned, uh, you know, why didn't this happen across the U.S.? It happened in a couple of regions. It happened in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, Montana and Idaho, and it was supposed to be nationwide. But 
for this 1905 special census and the document check, and for a couple of different other things that were happening at the time, Chinese worldwide rebelled. And they said, enough. This, is, this, this type of treatment is not going to stand. Wow. We, we've tried uh, moral arguments that right. the treatment that we're receiving is wrong, and those right. didn't work. We've tried legal arguments. You know, 1892 Gary Act was fought against in the Supreme Court, and they lost. So now we're going to hit you where it hurts. We're going to hit your pocketbook. And so in 1905, there was a boycott, a worldwide anti-American boycott, where Chinese communities refused to buy American goods. Wow. Now, if you're a Chinese guy in Fort Benton, of course you got to buy American goods. But the Chinese in Montana were definitely intertwined with this. That boycott started in Shanghai. Not many of the Chinese who came to America were from Shanghai, and there's a complex set of circumstances as to why, why Shanghai was its its origin. Uh, but in 1905, with the goal of trying to rescind the Chinese Exclusion Act and all its additions, and just to gain better treatment for the Chinese in America, this boycott ensued. It did achieve certain goals. Chinese exclusion was not rescinded, so many scholars think that it failed in that regard. I think that it succeeded in many more ways. Teddy Roosevelt was so um, impacted by this that he ordered that uh, inspectors at the ports and borders needed to treat Chinese who were coming in with more respect. He transferred the most intransigent and stubborn of them away from those posts, and certain concessions were given to the Chinese across the nation. And that special census was stopped. So that activism really then did have an impact down the line. I'm also fascinated with the fact that you were able to trace people, showing that they're here 10 years, more than 10 years. That is a long time to spend somewhere, and you're not making regular trips back and forth, is my guess. So people are really established in a community, perhaps having a family, raising children, establishing places of worship. They're contributing. And, I mean, this is the thing that gets me, right? You're paying taxes yeah. as one of these people. And then not only, and we, I want to get back to our question on the gold, too, because we have this idea that a lot of them first came to Montana because of the gold rush after California and other places, and then 1860 come here. But they were not allowed from the get-go, way before the Chinese Exclusion Act. They were not allowed to have their own mining claim. So what was the relationship between the Chinese again? I mean, from the very beginning, they've been excluded from so many avenues of being able to have a legal claim to property or business or anything like that, just any kind of status. They definitely did follow those gold rushes, and they definitely did take part in gold mining. In 1872, there was an attempt to bar their, them from owning gold claims. At times that was enforced, at times that was not. Okay. So they were involved in precious metal mining in Montana. Okay. In placer mining, most especially. When it went to load mining, where you needed more capital investment and things That's like that, different. They, they had been pretty much pushed out of those mining opportunities by that point in time. Okay. When we think about other mining in Montana, we think about Butte a lot of times in those underground mines. There was a standing rule, basically, that... Uh, Chinese were not allowed to work in the underground mines in Butte. Mm. Mm. So they couldn't take those jobs away from the Irish or whoever. Yeah, okay. Um, The the, the gentleman who we translated the second set of documents for in the 1930s to 40s to 50s, he is the first one to break that uh, informal prohibition. He gets a job in the Mountain Con mine. And what year? That was was 1941. 1941, So it might have been wartime production. Right, right. But that's an interesting part. Fascinating. And yes, they were pushed out of many, many occupations. Pushed out either by law or local custom from mining eventually by the mid-1880s. And they really, 
occupied economic niches that that were needed for the communities in the West, but were not taken up by other men who they would compete against. You this mentioned laundry, right. And mostly laundry yeah. work. And yeah. that's so fascinating because um, you said there was also boycotts. Yeah. Even though there were all these other laws and, and so much, occasionally there were these economic boycotts yeah. of Chinese-owned businesses. So it's it's astonishing that we had as many people manage to stay and yeah. survive and leave these records behind. Yeah, in 1866, there was an anti-Chinese laundry boycott in Helena. In 1885, across much of the state, there were boycotts against the Chinese. And that's a particularly dangerous moment because in September 1885, there was the Rock Springs Massacre down in Wyoming. And there was expulsions, I believe, in November 1885 over in Tacoma, Washington. Mm. And so this rhetoric was across the West. Thankfully, in Montana, it never reached a level of violence that it did in Tacoma or in, right. in Wyoming. But I think we need to be careful to to not think too specifically about what violence meant. Right. And I that's was a good say segue, that. yeah. right? As mm-hmm. to what the one of the stories that you mentioned in the material that you graciously let us read. And that you've kind of mentioned already mm. a little bit today. You've too. mentioned Ah Chow a couple ah, of times. And, Chow, yeah. Yeah. and Ah Chow you came across when you were very from the very beginning translating yeah. that uh, epitaph on yeah. the, the gravestone. So tell us a bit about Ah Chow and that story. Well who's yeah, whose version story. do you want? Do you want the white <laughs> oh, white right. miners version? Or do you want You're going to have to weave them both together <laughs> <Yeah>. for us. <laughs> so John Arbitzer had come from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He's got his own fascinating story of how he came to Montana. And so, and he's the one that was on that headstone he's that your mother-in-law his, saw. His remains reside okay. in the Benton Avenue Cemetery. John Arbitzer. Bitzer. Here he, he lies came from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. Here he lies. His life cut short. His death avenged. We know that Achao killed Bitzer. The circumstances under which that killing happened are still at, at issue. John Bitzer, on 10.30 on a Saturday night, was walking home from downtown Helena to his mining claim up Grizzly Gulch. And that takes you through the, the Chinatown at the time. According to Bitzer, he heard a disturbance in, quote, a Chinaman's cabin, went in to see what was going on and found this Chinese person we know to be Ah Chow beating a woman. Bitzer, being the white knight that he thought of himself as, apparently... Uh, ordered Achao to stop. Achao did, but Achao went into the other room, came back with a pistol, and shot Bitzer. Bitzer's wounded. Bitzer rests the pistol from Achao, scolds him, we think, and leaves. Goes to the Cayuse Saloon. You can't make these names up, right? No, you can't. Uh, goes to the Cayuse Saloon. <laughs> the Wild West. Where he has plenty of time because he's wounded, but, you know, it, it's not looking good for him. He's got, he's got plenty of time to tell his version of events. He dies 14 hours later, surrounded oh. by his mining partners and others. Uh, there's a, an alternate version of events that said that Ah Chow came home and found Bitzer in his cabin assaulting this woman, forcibly dallying with this woman is the, is the line. And so Ah Chow shot Bitzer to stop the assault and because this person had, had entered his home unwanted. Uh, ah Chow, some, some in Helena believe that side of the story, some in Helena believe Bitzer's side of the story. Ah Chow doesn't stick around to tell his side of the story. But just... Tell our listeners where he, how Bitzer was shot, because that's yeah, also a very yeah, strange yeah, circumstance. Yeah. I mean, first of all, if he came into someone's house, this this man is Chinese, tells him to stop hitting his wife. That would be a very bold move for somebody who's already oppressed to then shoot somebody who's yeah. white, knowing what would happen. But the way in which Bitzer was shot. Yeah. And even that, to hear a disturbance in a house and to go in and investigate, mm-hmm. you know, with human nature being what it is, that does, that didn't ring true to me. Right. right. Yeah. So 
The wound entered Bitzer's groin and traveled upward through his stomach. So it came from he the lower be, behind if he was... He had to be laying down. Well, there's people at the time in the newspapers hypothesizing. It was CSI Helena at the time. So this okay. isn't us just um, whatever. But those were great hypotheses. They were. years later. They, <laughs> and these are people so they said hypothesizing. Okay. Either Bitzer knocked Achao down and Achao shot upward, or, and this is what people who tended to believe Achao's... Uh, as, as being righteously defending this woman, thought that Achao came home and Bitzer was on the woman prone and, and Achao shot him. Okay. okay. Well, I don't think we'll ever really know. No. Right. Okay. That's true. Achao We're goes not on digging him up, Bitzer? Uh, no. His, his relatives <laughs> remain pretty interested in his story. In fact, that tombstone isn't, isn't original. Oh, it was, no. it was funded huh. in the 1990s and the epitaph was not original. His oh. uh, Jameson Bitzer Bates was doing some genealogy. and <laughs> So they, they the prefer one version over the other? Oh, very much. Or, so. okay. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Achao went on the run, uh, fully aware of the vigilante justice of Montana at the time. In fact, Helena had this tree called the Hanging Tree, and its purpose was pretty clear by its name. By this point in time, more than 50 people had, had dangled at the end of the oh vigilante Not just in Helena, but territory-wide. Oh, okay, okay. And so... Uh, Achao went on the run. It's January in Montana. He's on the run for a number of days. A couple of different rewards are issued for him. Bitzer's mining partners issue a reward for $300, considerable amount in 1870. Wow. Dead or alive. Achao, the killer of John Bitzer, dead or alive. The Chinese merchants of Helena also issue a reward of $150. But their reward is very specific to cat apprehend and turn over to the authorities. Alive. They exactly. want him alive. Exactly. Because yeah. they want him tried. Right. And there was a functioning legal system at this point in time. Okay. The vigil the height of the vigilantes, eighteen sixty four, had passed. There oh, still are so the people who did that. Were hoping, I mean, this must be very fascinating to come in and be treated as as Dimsdale calls them animals, mm. basically liking to them. And here they are yeah. hoping that there's a justice system yeah. that would work for them. And, and and one of those Chinese merchants who issued the $150 reward, not for dead or alive, but for apprehend and turn over to the authorities, is a guy named Tong Hing. And as I looked into it, it looks like Tong is really trying to uh, straddle both communities. Mm -hmm. He wants to have a leadership role in the Chinese community, and he wants to have a partnership role in the white communities. And so the other element of it is knowing Chinese culture, I looked at the dates and I could tell that Chinese New Year was just around the corner from oh, this January is, event. Yeah. We know that the Chinese communities celebrated Chinese New Year in very loud and, and obvious ways. And I think that the Chinese leaders of the community in Helena worried that if they didn't help apprehend Achao, the violence that was being threatened against Chinese communities across the region might be realized against the whole community. So he was seeing the bigger regional and, and global picture that you and, had And I about. think he had a, a selfish uh, sure. self-interest of wanting to have this role right. as leader. He, he entertained white members of society, and he had a, an important role for the Chinese, but also as this go-between. Interesting. So there's two rewards, $300, dead or alive, and $150 to catch and apprehend him. Well, he is caught. He's caught about six days later. Now, the temperatures during this time period are 38 degrees below zero. Oh, my God. So Achao's oh, on the wow. run. And Achao wasn't in good health. Doesn't <laughs> sound like it. I yeah. thought, how could this laugh, guy have even, so, you know, attacked somebody, much less I'm surprised he, he did. Because he had a broken arm or yeah, something. Yeah, the, the description of the murderer. He sounded so unhealthy. Yeah. Rheumatism. He's got and, rheumatism. One arm is in a sling. He's limping. He's got a hatchet wound between his uh, yeah. shoulder blades. Oh, is that recent? I mean, what is that? I don't really know. Scar I think he probably had a, a workplace 
accident. He he, he drove a team wow. of horses moving Dang. lumber up and down the gulch. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, but he was not in a good state. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, also, what happens, and some people grasp onto these elements. Uh, there are reports that Achao had killed two or three people previously. Oh. I didn't see that corroborated by anything. And what mm-hmm. it seemed to be is the longer he was on the run the more dangerous they made this desperado scene. Sure. They kind of built up the story. Exactly. Because right. if anyone's harboring him, yeah. they should turn exactly. him over. Exactly. And, gotcha. and so on the morning of, I believe it was January 25th, the results of the search are obvious and his body's dangling from Helena's hanging tree. Mm. Do we know who found we him? We do. Again, you can't make these names up. X Beadler. Oh, X Beadler strikes again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A noted vigilante from the 1860s. Yeah. Also a native of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where Vince mm. is from. I don't think there's any connection Hmm. But Weird. it's interesting. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. Beadler collects $600 in reward money. Wow. Oh, how did he up that uh, amount? My, my math tells me that that doesn't quite add up. Yeah. 300 dead yeah. or alive, 150. They passed the hat at the base of the hanging tree. Oh, and people who came wow. out to see Achao's That's so much tree. money. Exactly. This at is that time period. not wow. a pretty history, right? No. no matter how you slice it, even if he did do it. But, but there were some in Helena in the non-Chinese community who disagreed with this this treatment, they said, hey, we've got a functioning legal system. Oh, it wasn't a unified... Turn him over. In right. fact, supposedly, Beadler also received a note signed by 200 anti-vigilantes oh. saying, we long to see the day you're buried beside the China man you murdered. Wow. So it's, community was split. And, and in fact, only two people, you know, that's relative statement, only two people uh, swung from the hanging tree after Ah Chow's death because it had gone out of style to... As, as a modern territory trying to become a state to conduct affairs in that way. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he didn't hang him from it publicly, but left him to be found publicly, maybe even tells you yeah. that he knew already that this was, that's a very interesting turning point. But before we, we move on for that, I just want to ask about the woman in mm. the story and what, what we know her? about yeah. her. Yeah. If Can you find anything out about her? Sure. What so stories there might be? It's been difficult at first. Because she's an eyewitness, you would yeah, think, right? Yeah. At first, it, it wasn't even clear if she was Chinese. And this is back to my high school students investigating oh back and forth. Gosh, we did pretty quickly um, recognize that she was a Chinese woman. Okay. And then we tried to figure out more of what we could. There, there was a lot of newspaper coverage about this in the, in the papers of Helen at the time. And one article after Bitzer had expired is a long article with his mining partners there and with the coroner and the sheriff there and the Chinese woman there at the body of Bitzer, the white miner killed by Ah Chow. The Chinese woman is present at the coroner's inquest. And this is a long article. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, we're going to get some details on her. We're going to get, oh, this is going to be great. Right at the moment where it's supposed to transition to telling about her, the original copy of the uh, newspaper is damaged beyond repair. Oh, uh, oh no. All microfilm right. oh, copies no. that were made were That's made from that original. That is just criminal. But I thought, well, the coroner was there. Maybe there's a coroner's inquest, right? A record of so this. So you go looking. I go looking, and I'm still looking. Uh, it's Mark, likely it's that it's a it conspiracy. Was... <laughs> Somebody is hiding the true story. Of I went Ocho. everywhere I could think to go. I think it might have been destroyed in a fire in the Montana Historical Society. Oh, it's a bigger conspiracy than I thought. Then they but... burned down the whole building. <laughs> okay, Bitzer's... I'm just joking for anybody who's listening. Bitzer's mining partners, though these guys named Samson and Macomb, who issued the $300 reward, claimed that the Chinese woman gave the account of the death of Bitzer just as Bitzer had. So mm. they claim that she agreed with the white version of events. Uh, again, human nature, I, I imagine the scene where Bitzer's body is laid out 
His mining partners are there, both white. The sheriff is there, the coroner there, white. All of Bitzer's allies are there and yeah. angry. And you've got this Chinese woman who probably has very little English language abilities yep. and has no allies of her own there at that moment. Right. So I kept trying to find what I could about this Chinese woman. Okay. And, and I'm not the only person who knows this Bitzer Achao story. And so I, I searched online a little bit and... and I could not find her identity as I've gone through the Montana Historical Society, upward, down, and sideways. And then finally, somebody who runs a bed and breakfast out in the Helena Valley, and it's a bed and breakfast that has historically themed rooms, tells us interesting stories of the region. Fun, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories, one of the rooms is de devoted to the Bitzer Achao story. Not and, a very romantic story. For I was a just going to say. I'm not staying it, in that room, yeah, but go that. ahead. <laughs> and and the, the author of the blog said, you know, to give authenticity and, and claim deep research, said, I, I go to the Montana Historical Society and for these stories on my blog for this Airbnb, the author claimed that all of the stories are vetted through deep research. And they said, I've, I've held the yellowed, fragile documents in my hand. And they, the, the author of this blog, claimed to know the identity of the Chinese woman in question. Oh, wow. And her name was Jasmine. Oh, come on. And like I, the rice. I and thought to tea. myself, yeah. uh, I've yeah. been to the Montana Historical Society. I've held all the yellowed, fragile documents in my hands that I could get my hands on, and I never once saw her referred to as Jasmine. Mm, Plus, right. it seemed a bit anachronistic. Wouldn't mm. they have put it in the paper if it was that easy to Well, maybe it's name. in that damaged portion. Yeah. That's... Okay. So I contacted the author of the blog and said, you know, I've got a passing interest in this story. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me more? How did you find right. that her name is Jasmine? The person said, oh, I just, I just made that up. <laughs> oh wow wow well that was an interesting find yeah but since then that name of jasmine has come down in the telling of it the story in, in a number of different resources that purport to know her name as jasmine i mm. did dig deeper and deeper though and i did find an identity that is probably closer to her true identity than jasmine she was called ah choi Choi. Okay. Okay. I thought maybe she would rise on the 1870 census right. that happened later that summer. Yeah. Right. But that's the census that refers to them as China man, China woman. Oh yeah. Well, going back to the Jasmine, you know that happens so often. That happens so frequently where someone is trying to just make the story yeah. um, a little bit better, yeah. a little more understandable, adds a little bit of information in, and then it gets recorded, it gets documented, and as you said, you know that Jasmine piece has now been published in books, mm. and and it just kind of perpetuates itself, and yeah. and then new history is made, <laughs> which new is not always made, the and, accurate. And the intention is to try to put a real face and identity. Yeah, yeah and I, you well, understand, I understand it, but that, it is it but... is amazing how quickly it can become a fact that's yeah. not that has right. no basis. And we right. are able to tell a little bit more about her story. Uh, Achao's body was left swinging from the hanging tree for three days as a warning to the oh, Chinese. Oh gosh! In, in the Oof, goodness! And nobody, Tong Hing, the leader of the Chinese community basically washed his hands of things. And he was actually in charge of, of conducting an important cultural rite for the Chinese in, in the region to uh, bury the Chinese who had, had passed away, to let their flesh decompose, and then to exhume their bones to be sent back to China for ritual burial back in China. It sounds strange, but that was the cultural tradition at the time. But he, even he would not go and, and do such a thing for Ah Chow. So his mm. body was left swinging, and only one person visited him, and it was Ah Choi. She made that voyage from Chinatown up to the hanging tree. It was a mile-round trip. And again, during that week, 
temperatures dipped as low as 38 degrees below uh, zero. So the question yeah. also comes up is, is she a prostitute and was Ah Chow her handler? Mm-hmm. Or is this Ah Chow's wife? That I mean, she could devotion, even be a sister, she, but she's somebody devoted. She's that somebody, devotion of yeah. making that trek in those temperatures, braving possible violence, speaks to a spouse's devotion to me. Right, Absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. And doesn't speak to necessarily the story that she supposedly... Um, Corroborated. Corroborated, that's the word I'm looking for. Okay, we're just going to take a quick station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM Bozeman. We are talking today with Mark Johnson about the history of the Chinese in Montana. So, Mark, you know, I think I kind of believe the Achao, you know, that Achao came in and, and found Bitzer on, you know, and I, 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 from all the evidence that you presented, that seems like the the story to me. But other people still in Helena believe the other the other side of the story. Is that correct? You know, more of his family members, Bitzer's family members, uh-huh. who have looked into this story. Um, some people claim, you know, that that Bitzer never touched a drop of alcohol and was this great upstanding citizen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, don't it's know. just it's gonna like you said, it's gonna be hard to ascertain what the actual um, yeah. truth of the story is. I don't know that we'll ever get to what really happened in that in that cabin. But what I love about the story is it really showcases all these different aspects of history and Helena happening at that mm-hmm. time with the Chinese community, the you know the the gentleman who put up the 150 dollar reward. I mean there's so much going on and in the story and you can really see it all play out. So that's why the story yeah. is important and significant. Um, but you talked a little bit about the burial practices there. And I just want, you know, I want to dive into this burial practice a little bit because uh, as I'm reading through newspapers here in Bozeman, um, I see a- a- um, articles all the time where people are so fascinated in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s with Chinese customs, burial customs. And oftentimes we hear about how um, the person would be buried, the Chinese um, man or woman would be buried, and then five to seven years later their remains would be exhumed and sent back to China. And so we hear that, but there's so much more to this burial custom. And we we are reading it in the newspapers from a white viewpoint. And it's very much looking at this custom, these customs, these traditions in a very very, I guess uh, if they're exotic, exotic and, and, and yeah. way, and so so I just want you to talk a little bit about that because you really dived in recently, and and I heard your presentation at the Montana History Conference last year on this, and it was so fascinating. And so I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about some of these customs that people were seeing with the the colors, the white and mm. the black, and and really explain those from that Chinese viewpoint so sure. we can better understand. First, I just want to say, obviously, I'm an outsider to this culture, and I'm speaking from study that I've done, but not from an insider's cultural perspective. But you're absolutely right. The Montana newspapers in the 1860s, 70s, even to the 1940s, were fascinated with death rituals amongst the, the state's Chinese. And oftentimes, it was about that exemption of the bones to be sent back. But even earlier, there was a lot of the actual burial practices that were fascinating. They, they mentioned oftentimes, uh, you know, this wailing that took place and the music and the burning of incense and the burning of the person's goods and trying to make sense of that. Sometimes the newspapers tried to ascribe it to Confucian beliefs or Buddhist beliefs or Taoist beliefs. To be honest, it was a mix of all three and 
Chinese folk traditions of southern China. And the、mm-hmm. beliefs were that for、uh, somebody who has departed to rest well, they needed to be honored and revered in certain ways. And so the, the burial practices had to happen in a certain way with certain elements attended to. Music was used to try and guide the, the spirit from where the body had been prepared to the cemetery so that the spirit didn't get lost along the way.、Um, incense was used to transcend, you know,、uh, many different religious traditions use burning and incense as a, a mode to transform something of this world into something to be used in the next world. Fascinating. And you mentioned that paper was、mm-hmm. left behind with holes cut in、yeah. it. Tell us what that was. Yeah, they, that's frequently reported in Montana newspapers. There's an account, I think, from 1867, which does show exactly that. These papers being strewn behind the, the death carriage as it goes to the burial plot. And these papers had holes in it. The Chinese cultural belief is that、uh, ghosts, evil spirits, can't travel, in, they, they only travel in straight lines. So, you can delay them if they have to go around corners or things like that. And the belief was that they had to then travel through each of these holes in the hundreds of、so、strips of paper. It required them to. Slowing、okay. that ghost,、oh, hopefully、yeah. delaying it so that it wouldn't interfere with、mm. a proper burial. You know, we had a、um, newspaper account of、um, a woman who we will never know her name probably, but they referred to her as, as、um, China Mary. And I'm doing air quotes、mm. when I say that. But,、um, and they talk about her death. And I think it was in 1910. And they talk about that, that the, those pieces of paper were strewn behind her、yeah. with holes in it. And, and、um, so I, it, it's, it was interesting. So I'm glad you explained that.、Yeah. I wanted and, to know more about that. And I mentioned that, that 1867、um, article. I think that was from Virginia City. And the white newspaper reporter reporting on the death rituals attributed the spirit that they were trying to、uh, distract as Gwei. W, GWE, which pretty closely approximates the Cantonese word for ghost. And、oh, so that、yeah. tells us that there is some communication between the white majority、yeah. and these Chinese、mm-hmm. practicers of their traditional beliefs.、Um, so that was often noted the burning of, of goods. And then also different festivals throughout the year. In April, there's what's called Qingming Festival or Tomb Sweeping Day. And it was noted in the, the newspapers at the time that the Chinese would go out and clean the graves and things like that. And then later in the year, in, in August, in that time period, there's Hungry Ghost Festival where they would take food out、mm-hmm. to feed the ghosts to keep them happy. And that idea of a proper burial to honor the, the honor and the ritual and the reverence is largely Confucian. But then the keeping a spirit who has passed on happy so that it can reign prosperity on those living, that's more Buddhist and Taoist. So it's coming together of all of these things. Now, In southern China, to do these rituals properly, you needed very specific occupations. You needed priests, you needed people called corpse handlers,、right. you needed musicians who specialized in burial music. But to do these things, these individuals would take on corpse pollution.、Mm. To deal with a corpse in, in the spiritual beliefs of southern China accrues to the person handling the corpse, corpse pollution contamination. Okay. And that's culturally to be avoided if at all possible. And we, they weren't sending over corpse hands. I don't、exactly, know if that's a class、exactly. of people or yeah, whatever, but、yeah. it, it seemed like mostly laborers or、exactly. entrepreneurs were、you're, coming over. You're exactly right. So the adaptations had to happen here in the West because the people who, were, who had an occupation of being a corpse handler or a musician that did funeral music, 
those people were in a lowly status in mm. Chinese society and would not have likely been the ones to make their journey. Yet death happened here. Mm. Death mm-hmm. happened quite frequently here, right? And so the Chinese community to honor those spirits and continue the cultural traditions had to adapt. My assertion is we we have to dig into Taoism a little bit here, but there's these competing forces or these balanced forces of yin and yang. And yin is a feminine force. Yang tends to be a masculine force. And men have that yang force more present in them. And to handle a corpse that's infused with yin, the flesh of the corpse emits yin and contaminates the people around it. The bones, though, contain yang. Oh, interesting. So what evolved here, my assertion is that women, largely the small number of Chinese women here, largely were the ones who who conducted the death rituals. Okay. Partially because they maybe observed it back in southern China but also out of necessity here. So we have an account in Butte where there's a Chinese uh, funeral that happens and the men are setting to the side pretending indifference, but the women are the mourners who take care of the corpse and, and, and do what they need to do. Also, what emerged is adaptations with an unknowing white population yes you mentioned that mortuary rituals with the initial dealing with the corpse this becomes they going to white undertakers white undertakers and the white undertakers were happy to have their business and the chinese community was happy to not have the corpse pollution right and so in helena and billings and elsewhere they had uh, standing contracts with the the white undertakers of the region who would then prepare the body dig the grave take the body to be interred and and thus the Chinese could could uh, there had to be some cultural exchange and yeah. somewhat understanding there. Yeah, the the that. white undertakers noted also that for a Chinese grave, it mm. needed it didn't need to be dug as deep, right? Because yeah. they mm. were going to sure. theoretically be excavating yeah. again in five or seven years to get the bones. And so the by having a shallow grave, it, it aided decomposition, okay. and the flesh has the yin in it, and so the yin decomposes, leaving the bones that have the yang. And then five to seven years later, bone pickers who were employed by these Chinese agencies that helped the migrants would come and and identify who was buried where, exhume the bones, clean the bones, package them and send them back for second burial in southern China. Right. And you had said even the headstones or footstones, sorry, footstones were temporary, the markers, they were wood or something. We think of stone markers, right, for the Chinese because they knew they, they thought that their remains would not reside in uh, foreign soil forever, Mm. they didn't need a a permanent stone. So they were either one of two things. They were on wooden boards with ink painted on them, telling who's buried here and where their home village is so that return of remains could be facilitated. But those were impermanent, right? Right. And so we don't have any of those known to exist. They also used what's called a funeral brick to be placed in the the coffin. And so when the remains were uh, were unearthed, then the funeral brick would have painted on it who it is and where they were. Okay. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of funeral bricks in archaeological sites in California and Nevada. There's only one known to exist in Montana. Okay, that's from I was going to ask about that. So just yeah. one from Missoula, yeah. that's But it. then, you know, we also see some assimilation because here in Bozeman, it, is it Sunset Hills? Hills, yep. Uh, and in Billings and in, in Butte and in Helena, there are Chinese sections of cemeteries that have stone markers. Right. Indicating a couple of things, indicating possibly a transition to viewing here as home. And if you had family here who could tend to your spirit after you'd passed, that it, was it fine might be then. fine, okay. right? That they could feed your spirit and, and honor and respect it. And that would be a, a fulfilling of the cultural duties. The other thing is a lot of the tombstones that we have now are for women. Uh, and that makes mm-hmm. sense because, to be honest, in a, in a culturally 
a patriarchal culture, women's remains would be very unlikely to have been unearthed, cleaned, and returned oh, for that's rebellion. so interesting. Yeah. I thought you were going to say a conversion to Christianity. Mm, I didn't know if that was that, happening at that. all. Okay, um, but I think it it marks more of mm. some assimilation into that is fascinating into American society. Yeah, I love this. It's the material culture. Yeah, culture I know. History mixing, yeah, coming together. Yeah. Um, so the Chinese who came to America, you have mentioned in several parts of our conversation, and we're getting sort of to the end of our program here, but they're politically active here. They're tied into the political actions that are going on in China itself. And one of those movements was known as the Chinese Empire Reform Association. And I know we don't have a ton of time, but this is really a fascinating piece of history. And I remember you talking about this in the lecture. So please give us a little bit of understanding of what was going on with empire reform and how this ties into why some people were coming over from China and what they were doing here. So this is a long story, uh, you know, and I don't want to shortchange it, but it is fascinating. And back to the overall goals of the project, to tell the story of the Chinese in Montana in their own words or through their cultural lens and in a global perspective. Mm. And this Chinese Empire Reform Association in the late 1890s and early 1900s really does that second piece, understanding the Chinese experience in Montana by understanding Chinese history. And what had happened in the 1890s, there was a a change of leadership in China. It was still the Qing dynasty that it had been for hundreds of years, but the true emperor was rising to the throne. And he was the Guangxu emperor. He had taken over when he was quite young, too young to rule. And so a dowager empress was put in charge in his stead. Mm. As he comes of age, she is receding uh, into retirement and he is taking the throne. She was quite conservative, quite domineering, quite powerful, but quite conservative. And it had not worked very well for China. China had just been defeated by Japan in 1894-95. And China was not doing well. The Qing dynasty wasn't doing well back in China. And it also was quite weak in protecting its citizens abroad. Okay. In view to Helena, Bozeman, places like that. And so uh, the Guangxu Emperor has has ideas to move forward and modernize and westernize and update all aspects of Chinese society. These ideas come from two of his closest advisors. These are Kang Yo Wei and Liang Qi Chao. They're brilliant Confucian scholars from southern China, and they get the ear of the Guangxu Empire Emperor and say, we need to modernize, we need to westernize, we need to update maybe Western legal systems, Western political systems. Still, you can still be the emperor, but we need to move forward in a different That's direction. That's so interesting. Yeah. So this is what's called the 100 Days of Reform. Mm. Gives you a sense of how long it lasted, right? It didn't, <laughs> it didn't succeed because the, the Dowager Empress did not like the direction that the, this, these reforms were going in. She has a coup. She puts mm. herself back in wow. charge. Wait, this is her son that uh, she has a coup? Nephew, sort of? nephew. relative, okay. Gotcha, say. okay. So she, she places him in house arrest. Oh. And he will be in house arrest for the rest of his life. Oh, my gosh. In the Forbidden City. Wow. Now, the leaders of the 100 Days of Reform, there's about a dozen of them, Kong Yue and Liang Chi Chao are two. She has as many of them as they can get their hands on caught and beheaded. Oh, my. Putting an end to this. I'm surprised it got 100 days in. Yeah, 103, wow. I think. But Dang. Uh, Kong and Liang escape with their heads on their shoulders, and they live in exile. But mm. they don't give up that idea to modernize China, to westernize China, and to put in place the true emperor, the Guangxu emperor. So they want to fight to try to get her out or yeah. wait till she dies and get someone else Get the Guangxu place. emperor. Okay. In. okay. And so that's the Chinese empire reform. 
Okay. The empire, okay. We, we're not doing away with the Qing dynasty. Right. But we need Just to reform. reform it. So yeah. this Chinese Empire Reform Association started by Kong in 1899 in Vancouver, British Columbia. But then it spreads around the world. There's 150 branches around the world. My assertion is that Montana has the highest density of branches of any place in the world. Really? Wow. Some some estimates go as high as 12 branches in Montana. That might be a, a bit generous. But there was a strong Chinese empire reform presence in Montana. What do you think is that? I mean, the proximity yeah. isn't that far from, you said, where that headquarter was in, yeah. in, in British, British Columbia. British Columbia. Yeah. yeah, and Kong actually visited Montana in 1905. Wow. Liang Chi Chow visited Montana in 1903. And they toured through Montana's Chinese these communities and they're impressed these brilliant confucian scholars the elite are rubbing elbows with laundry workers restaurant workers miners and they would have known who these men their status these these are these are big time scholars and and leaders uh when they come through montana my assertion is that that kong and leong thought they were bringing empowerment and enlightenment but what they found in montana's chinese communities is quite a bit of empowerment here And I think a couple of things had happened. In Butte, the Chinese community in Butte had fought against a boycott in 1896-97. It stood up for themselves, even when Chinese leaders in the nation said you shouldn't. A boycott against their own businesses. Okay, wow. And they had some success in that, and they experienced some empowerment. It's hard to say exactly what confluence of motivations came together. But these Chinese empire reform branches in, across Montana were powerful. In Billings, they worked to start a school. In Butte, they're working on a school. In Butte, they actually start a militia, an armed militia of Chinese soldiers practicing with live ammunition, marching through the streets of Butte. A couple of years after the white community of Butte had tried to kick them out, yeah. And now they're practicing with live ammunition. That is, they, they are a force to be reckoned with now. And the goal for, mm-hmm. for militias like that, and, and Kong and Liang tried to... Uh, cultivate those across any branches of the Chinese Empire Reform Association. The goal, theoretically, was to go back to China, displace the Dowager Empress, and put it in place the Guangzhou Emperor. I don't think Butte's Chinese really cared two wits about the Guangzhou Emperor and the Dowager Empress. They knew that a stronger China back home would stand up for overseas Chinese wherever they were found. Right, right. Okay. And so they they hoped that that these efforts of the Chinese Empire Reform Association would help them have a, a... stronger what position here. Fascinating in global connection and yeah. right here in yeah. our state. Yeah. So there was twelve what's um where were those? You said Billings, Butte, Helena? Helena um, Marysville, Montana. Marysville? And there's actually wow. these these wonderful documents. They did these photo montages. Oh yes. With I've their, seen their those. photographs. Now so yes. photography is important for this story. The Gary Act photograph, that passport was a very restricted oh. photograph. It was a mugshot. Yeah. Yet these photographs and these Chinese Empire Reform Association photo montages are how they wanted to be portrayed. Their portraits, where exactly. they're stylizing Proud. themselves. And what their, their interests and their hopes and dreams were can be seen in these portraits. So Marysville, Montana has one with the Guangzhou Emperor at the top and these modern naval ships flanking the Guangzhou Emperor. And then I think the 13 members of Marysville, Montana, it's a ghost town today, yeah. uh, Chinese Empire Reform Association. We have the photo montage from Butte. Okay. Several of these branches became incorporated entities filing paperwork with the state of Montana. Wow. Butte and Helena. Uh, 
there's it's a possibility that there was one in Livingston. Okay. There, it's possible that there's one in Fort Bend and one in Haver. Virginia uh, City? No, by no? this point in time. Things were yeah, done, kind yeah, of done there. Pretty, okay. Pretty Bozeman? Uh, maybe in Bozeman. Okay. It's, it's hard to tell. I know that Kong did come through Livingston after visiting uh, Yellowstone National Park. Oh, wow. Right, on his way to Helena and Butte and uh, Haver and, and these different places. Okay. The only place that I know there was definitely not one is Great Falls. Because mm. Great Falls prohibited Chinese from settling there. That's a yeah. different story. I'm sorry to take us down that tangent. But yeah. this moment of empowerment helps us see the Chinese in Montana like they viewed themselves. Not as this anonymous Chinaman from the 1870 census, but as soldiers, as reformers, as activists, as empowered individuals striving to overcome great obstacles here in Montana and the West but to achieve their, their community goals and their individual that goals. That is fascinating. So yeah. they are the local people living here, putting themselves on these posters yeah. with these portraits. That's, yeah, that's kind of putting themselves cool. into that global network yeah. as well. Yeah, very and, proud and yeah, yeah, yeah. empowered. I love the story that you tell because it really is from that Chinese perspective, and it is in it really does tie our um, Montana overseas Chinese to the, to the Chinese um the broader Chinese story, which I think is so important and is I think has been lost. So it's it's wonderful to hear this and to hear your stories about Ah Chao, but also to hear the stories about the the reform movement as well. Yeah. So it's so interesting. So we are coming kind of wrapping <laughs> up with our time here, but it's been so great talking with you today, Mark. And thanks for taking the time to come over and, and talk with us in person. It's so great to see your face. And I'm sure listeners will be so excited to eventually uh, read all this in a book. So hopefully you're working on that and hopefully that'll come to fruition because like I said, it's just such an important story. Well, I, I as you can tell, I enjoy talking about it and I, I appreciate yeah. the work that you're doing with the Dirt on the Past and the Extreme History Project. You're, you're telling important stories in interesting ways and collaborating with people who just have fun digging into the past. Absolutely. And to think this all started with your mother-in-law. We right. have her to thank. So <laughs> a shout friends. out. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks, Lucille. Lucille. Yeah. <laughs> so um, thanks to you, Mark, and Steve, as always, for recording us and editing out our mistakes. And to all of our <laughs> listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again and find out more about The, the Dirt, Dirt on, on the Past. past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.